This is Leader ReadyCast, a monthly podcast featuring real-world lessons, best practices, and action-oriented insights for the you're-it moments when you're called upon to lead. Leader ReadyCast is the official podcast of the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative, a joint program of the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health and the Center for Public Leadership at the Harvard John F. Kennedy School of Government. Subscribe to Leader ReadyCast wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Welcome to the latest episode of Leader ReadyCast. I'm your host, Eric McNulty, and our guest today is Marcus Coleman, Jr., the Acting Deputy Director of the DHS Center for Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships. We're going to discuss the critical role of faith-based and neighborhood organizations in disaster preparedness and response. Marcus is an alumnus of the MPLI program and has long worked in this area. Marcus, welcome to the program. Thank you, Eric. Happy to be with you and with the MPLI team. Well, thank you. It's good to have you here, and it's good to have all the work you're doing with the Department of Homeland Security. Now, to set the stage and start us off, what are the faith-based neighborhood organizations most active in disaster preparedness and response, and what role do they play? Well, that's a great question. And so I think typically when people talk about faith-based organizations active in disasters, they may be thinking about one of the 343,000 houses of worship across the country um, or one of the 1.5 million nonprofits. I'd say in actuality, when you talk about specifically the disaster space, you have a few organizations that have written within their mission, vision, and really aligned with donor intent to play an active role in the disaster response, preparedness, and recovery space. Many of these organizations organize under an umbrella a group called the National Voluntary Organizations Active in Disasters. It's a little more than 60 national organizations, and so people may not be familiar with the National Voluntary Organizations Active in Disasters, but they would be familiar with the Red Cross, Salvation Army, Southern Baptist, Islamic Relief, or Buddhist Suchi. These organizations all work together between the 60 member organizations and various associations at the state and territory level and organize really around four C's, communication, coordination, collaboration, and cooperation. Some of my fellow alumni and MPLI are part of these organizations as well. And so those are the groups that do a lot of the work in the disaster space. But then you're also going to have on the neighborhood side or on the non-faith-based side or secular side, organizations that may work alongside some of those same member groups. Uh, but maybe are independent from the National BOAD. So for one example, AARP does a tremendous amount of work in preparedness and has been doing an increasing amount of work around providing some recommendations for response and recovery operations, formerly the American Association of Retired Persons. Uh, Another example is the Center for Disaster Philanthropy, which has taken a lead role in understanding the trends around giving about what people give towards, but then also how much money is going into preparedness versus recovery, for example. And then the final example, you have a lot of community groups that traditionally play roles that would be associated with advocacy or civil rights uh, that are very active in this space. And, And an organization that's been doing this for quite some time in an affiliated capacity and then also independently is the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. Uh, they're really taking the charge to meet the neighbors, neighbor, neighborhoods and communities that they serve where they are and really organized around this idea of environmental justice or just making sure that the citizens that are affected by disasters know what resources are available to them from some of their partners. The NAACP, uh, AARP, Center for Disaster Philanthropy, like I said, 
often work alongside many, many of the members that are considered part of the formal national volunteer organizations active in disasters. I know there were some acronyms in there, so I'll try to stay out of jargon jail and keep those to a minimum. But those are some of the organizations that kind of do this work on a daily basis or, or by the disasters that we experience. And so there's perhaps a point of differentiation is there are some of these larger organizations that, as you say, they do this every day. They think about it. They prepare for it. They join organizations like National VOAD. They have been to a number of disasters. And then there are the many, many, many smaller players who may show up because something happens in their backyard or in the, you know, nearby and they just want to help out. And, and your work, do you work with both of those levels of organizations or is your primary focus with the, the larger national organizations? Uh, so we, we do work with both levels, and I'll say that we're led by both levels. And so uh, you'll have with some organizations, for example, some nonprofits have a federal, federalized structure. And so there might be an umbrella organization that's nationally rules and tools, but a lot of the work gets done at the local level, chapter by chapter, affiliate by affiliate, branch by branch. And so for those federated organizations, we definitely do work both with the national side of the organization, but we listen and learn from those local leaders who are often doing the work that's unseen, you know, to many when the cameras get there and when the cameras leave. For those organizations that aren't affiliated, maybe with the larger umbrella organization, we, we absolutely look to those organizations because they're the ones that are usually organizing around the community needs in the immediate. And we know that those same type of smaller organizations are really going to be the backbone of the longer term recovery. So those are typically the organizations that fold into what we would call on the emergency management side, uh, long-term recovery groups. It's, it's, um, it's a methodology that's been uh, evolved for many years, but I think it's gotten a lot more traction and attention uh, given the, the increased complexity, severity, and intensity of disasters that we're facing and just the long-range planning that's needed for recovery. So thinking about the full range of the organizations you work with, what are the two or three things that you think are overlooked or underappreciated about the activities of faith-based organizations in disaster response? Uh, it's a wonderful question, and, and it's one that I, I think about and challenge myself on often. I say that what I've learned the most that I continue to be surprised by is the diversity of sectors within what we would consider faith-based organizations. And so take the Catholic Church, for example. So in the traditional emergency management space, when you think about the Catholic Church, you may be thinking about Catholic Charities USA, a marvelous organization that does a lot of work in the disaster response and recovery space. But I was introduced to, a few months ago, an organization called Catholic Church Facilities Managers, which are the subject matter experts that manage all of the facilities of the Catholic Church that are very interested in some of these questions, not just for facilities, but also for staff members. And so there's some diversity within organizations like that. And you may see that trend across different faith traditions. I think the other thing that we have to embrace and celebrate is the pluralism of religious diversity in this country. We still have about 71 to 79 percent of people that adhere to some form of religion in the country. And oftentimes within those religions, you're going to have different subsets, right? And so there's not just one Baptist organization. There's several. There's not just one Jewish organization. There's several. There's not just one a Muslim or Islamic organization, there's several. And I think the diversity there um, is equally important as well. The second piece is when we think about faith engagement, you know, getting beyond the idea of just thinking about the house of worship, two staples in any community that are often affiliated with faith-based organizations can be hospitals and universities. 
And so, for example, we work very closely with Wheaton College in Wheaton, Illinois, which is a faith-based, a Christian-based university. But there's tremendous work in the space of promoting and collecting the ideas in the Christian space around what it means to be active in disasters before, during, and after. Another university example, not faith-based inspired, but they have a center on religion and civic culture is the University of Southern California. And then, of course, you have Harvard University with different programs like the Pluralism Project and things like that. Really tying the nexus, I think, between getting beyond thinking just the, what people would consider either the storefront or the large house of worship or the, the community center that also has a house of worship located in it. So uh, those are, are two things. I think the third, and this is more community-based, is that organizations operate under donor intent. I think, you know, most other times when we give to philanthropies or organizations, you know, we give with an understanding that there's certain things that they're charged to do just based on their donor intent. And it, it's been an interesting trend to see with disasters that there's been sometimes some challenges where organizations that aren't actively usually involved in the space begin to raise funds outside of their donor intent. And that really raises some challenges. And, and I'll say, thankfully, there's been an increase in education and collaboration among the nonprofit sector to really help organizations that if they're going to decide to get in the business of disaster relief or get into the business of helping people through the disaster relief process, uh, that the donor intent and board governance kind of match that. So that way, they're responsible stewards of the money that's coming into the organizations that are that's intended to help the community in the long term. Well, it's good because I, as I know you know well, the whole business of disaster response and long-term recovery are fairly complex. And so just wanting to do a good thing and help people out is, is nice, but there's a whole lot more to learn about what that takes and how to work together. You talked about the diversity in the faith-based community. I also think is a good point to be made around the commonality. I mean, I was seated at dinner about a month ago with the president of Islamic Relief USA. And we were talking about the work they did and whatever. And they said, you know, when they get somewhere, they're sitting shoulder to shoulder with the Catholic organizations and the Jewish organizations and the Southern Baptists, whoever else is there. And these groups very much look forward to working together, uh, even though they come from, from different faith backgrounds, uh, which I think speaks well to this desire to help out one's, the people in the community, to help out the, one's fellow man, as it were. It brings people together in a very cohesive way. Absolutely. That's a remarkable example. And, and I think it is a testament to just the, the amount of, uh, of collaboration between faiths. I know in Princeville, North Carolina, for example, uh, Islamic Relief USA is working side by side with the United Methodists and others to really help rebuild a community that has a lot of historic ties uh, to, to the, the history and fabric of this country. And, and I think you're right. In every disaster, it's amazing to see the different faith traditions come together to really solve some common problems and, and operate off of those shared values of, you know, feeding the hungry, uh, making sure that everyone has shelter and that some of the immediate needs are met, met taking care of children. And, and it's definitely an inspiring thing to see uh, manifested in disasters and long after the disasters as well. It's a good opportunity to build community. In terms of your role at DHS, in what we would call it here at the MPLI is you do a lot of leading beyond because you, most of your work is with organizations outside the four walls of DHS. What have you learned about leading beyond in your role? And what are the challenges and what do you see as the opportunities of working with such disparate organizations? So uh, it's a very good point. I would say that we definitely lead beyond because our office is a, a national office and it's a mighty office of right now three. <laughs> uh, and so we can't do any of the work that we do 
without our partners. I, I think the key thing that I've learned, and it was a concept that I, I didn't have words for, but was introduced to uh, through a book called Getting Beyond Better, is really being able to understand and sit with the existing status quo between silos before trying to influence or implement change. And by that, I mean, when we talk about, I'll say for preparedness, for example, the general preparedness message has been, you know, get a kit, make a plan, be informed. And it, it's kind of been that one, two, three step. But that doesn't necessarily align with the status quo or with some of the common conversations of some of the leaders that we deal with day to day. A space that has gotten a lot of attention and continues to get increased attention now that has been a status quo conversation is, how do I financially provide for my family in times of an emergency? Or what are some of the things that I should consider financially if we're impacted by something that's unsuspected, right? So it doesn't always have to be necessarily a bad thing, but in the disaster space, we definitely think about it that way. And so uh, we spend a lot of time over the years listening to organizations and, and listening to community members and local emergency managers, honestly, quite frankly, just in terms of what the status quo is, in terms of what is it that, that you're actually talking about that has nothing to do with the disaster space. And what we found with some organizations is that there's been a lot of conversation around just general savings. And so uh, there was an interesting report that was released uh, like a year or so ago that talked about how the average American doesn't have enough money for a $400 emergency. Well, that yes. has implications for the disaster field because that means that you're going to have a lot of families that may not even be able to meet their insurance deductible, much less carry different types of insurance. And so partnering with some organizations like Operation Hope, which is a national VOAD member, and the American Red Cross and others, we've really taken to how do we help introduce this concept of financial literacy, which is very popular and wildly popular within the status quo of a lot of faith-based and community organizations, but then introducing that preparedness narrative to it to make it simple. Um, that's one example of leading beyond. I think the other thing that I've learned is that you can't give people too much too quickly. And I think in emergency management, because it's, you know, nobody hears about who their local emergency manager is until the emergency happens. And I have to fight this temptation as well. We're kind of in a rush to share everything we know at one time. And oftentimes we have to slow down and just understand that the community is, is a well-organized machine and just wants to get to the next step. Um, the piece that I continue to struggle with is just making sure that we have a deeper appreciation and understanding of the evolving landscape of trusted messengers. I think that there was a time when you talk about community outreach and engagement where the trusted messenger had kind of a traditional role or was looked at as a traditional figure. So you would think about the pastor, the priest, the rabbi, the imam as trusted messengers, and that's still the case. But now you have the example with all of the connection and connectivity um, from the social media space, the ability for people to kind of put out unfeathered opinions or just put out facts that they see on the ground uh, with tremendous speed and outside of some of the traditional communication vehicles that we're used to, what it means to engage and inform those messengers to continue to be trusted messengers looks a lot different. And in terms of leading beyond in that space, it's something that I, I still have a lot of learning to do. But I, I found it to be helpful to kind of accept that status quo change as well. Is that something that has nothing to do with me in some aspects, but in, in, in other regards, it has everything to do with the effectiveness for our job to, to really lead beyond the space that we're in. So it sounds to me as if you are, you're sort of part anthropologist and that you have to understand all the different cultural nuances and 
the meaning that is baked into different aspects of people's lives because of their faith and or their neighborhood affiliation. And you also have to do a fair amount of translation between uh, what the formal sector is going to show up and do, what they expect of the these uh, faith-based neighborhood organizations, and, and back and forth so people can understand what the other people are doing, where they are, where they're trying to go, what they're trying to say. Uh, is that a fair assessment? That is, that is, as usual, that is a much better way of saying what I, what I was trying to convey. <laughs> so you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, and yeah, that, that is the space that, that we live in most often. I, the, the last thing that I want to kind of leave for, for this part of the conversation is the other piece about leading beyond is understanding the resources and the, the, the skills that people have that they're already excellent at and not trying to be excellent in their silos. And so just deviating a bit from the natural disaster space, man-made disasters, I am not a subject matter expert on what happens with an active assailant, how to deal with the different implications that lead up to somebody doing an active shooter incident. But we are very much a trusted messenger and a trusted partner in helping organizations kind of think through those questions. And so in partnership across agencies and across local governments as well, we've picked up a lot of great examples that we share and just point back to those sources. For an example, I'm actually calling in from Dallas today, but we're going to be spending some time with Bishop T.D. Jakes, who has a church of about 40,000, very large reach to pastors across the globe. And we're going to be talking about some of those resources that our partners offer at the federal, state, local, and non-government level that help other faith leaders think about how to connect and get beyond some of their questions to connect with other pastors and leaders that might have gone through that process of setting up a safety and security plan. And so sometimes leading beyond means leading just far enough to connect to people and then get out of the way. Well, that, and that's a smart thing to do. That's a smart thing to do. I think that uh, the leaders we have seen who are effective, they are very attuned to when it's time to get out of the way and let good things happen. But I've also, and I came up with that anthropologist and translation analogy, not on the fly, but because I've been on the ground in, in disasters and response and seen how important and how underappreciated that function is because people come into it with their assumptions, their processes, their protocols. They don't operate the bubble. Once you hit the ground, you're there with everybody else. So it's good. That is true. Very true. Now, what else would you want others to know about working with these organizations? What assumptions at the federal, state, and even local level need to be corrected? And where can these organizations contribute the most, do you think? Good question. So one of the, the issues that I see as a challenge for all of us is I think by some of our, from the government perspective, some of the assumptions about non-government organizations strip away the realities of what it means to lead those kind of organizations, right? So if I lead a staff of 150 employees and we have a service area of maybe two or three states, people would typically assume we're thinking about a nonprofit organization, but that can very well be a senior pastor of a large church, right? Or you think about the decision-making that has to be done by the head of a Jewish community center. One of the, the areas that I encourage, particularly for those people that want to get into this space a little bit more intently, is make sure that you're packaging and presenting your information executive to executive the same way that you would for a private sector partner. I don't think anybody's going to come to Pepsi and ask them to sell clothes in the middle of a disaster. Uh, you may want to build that partnership based on the, the, the model and intent of their organization. I think the same should go with the faith-based organization, the community-based organization. Spend a little bit of time kind of seeing what they're doing and what they're best at already and kind of where their focus is. 
and then lead with providing and packaging that information for the executive of that organization as well. I think that that's one area that continue to see kind of challenged by. And then the, the other side of it, and I feel like that this is evolving within the greater discipline, is there are so many policies, procedures, regulations, exceptions, and we, we can't expect that for the 25 or 30 people on the emergency management side that understand the different bits and pieces in that, that you're going to find the same 25 people on the non-community or whole community side of the equation. You're going to have your stellar rock stars that, you know, can get in there and understand the policies just enough and make those connections. But while we want to talk about shared responsibility and, and onerous, far too many times we some faith-based and community-based organizations challenged with really managing the sheer amount of information and policies that they have to be responsible for. And oftentimes, could when people come to us, they talk about FEMA assistance, but they can be talking about the USDA program. They can be talking, excuse me, agriculture, U.S. Department of Agriculture program, a housing and urban development program, a Department of Labor program, but they just see FEMA. And so we spend some time not just working with them, but then also working across with our government partners to have them understand, you know, many of these pastors and faith leaders are carrying more than one issue and more than one program, and, and they're looking for multiple solutions. And so, yeah, those are, those are some of the challenges. And that's on the response recovery side. I think on the preparedness side, part of the challenges that we're seeing local emergency managers overcome again and again, honestly, is finding the, the common denominator in which to communicate with families on some practical things that they can do to be prepared. There's a tremendous amount of innovation happening at the local level in particular on engaging families and faith leaders and community leaders in ways that really embrace this idea of building a community and keeping a community strong and allowing that to be the lead and then have that leading to some of the preparedness efforts. I spent some time in Alaska recently where they just launched their Alaska Police Call Prepare Together initiative. It's very much modeled off of some of the things that they learned from their neighbors way down south in San Francisco um, in terms of neighborhood preparedness. But they did it because the way Alaska structured that I've come to learn is very, I'll say, village-oriented. So it's a, it's a lot of different, very strong communities in, throughout the state. And so they really want to embrace that idea as community to be the driver for building enough positive relationships and rapport for people to get behind being prepared. And so... Uh, it's a challenge that I've seen locally lead well on that federally from our office and across the agency, we want to definitely continue to support as they allow, as they continue to execute. So you know an awful lot about this, and I know you've been doing it for a while, but briefly, what's your story and how did you get into this work? Uh, it's a whole different podcast for a whole different time. <laughs> um, I, I'll say in, in general, I've, I've always been fascinated by the connection between civic engagement, the faith community, and solving common problems at a local level. So my original intent when I was going to come, when I came out of undergrad, was to be a city manager. And I worked in the city manager's office. And I really enjoyed it. And I actually ended up in FEMA. Some people end up here intentionally. I ended up here by accident, but it was because of the faith-based and community-based work. My first project at FEMA was actually having conversations about how to make preparedness messaging and how to make preparedness actions a lot more conversational and less about having the government tell you, 
here are your three steps, but more about if I wanted to bring together 20 friends or if I was running a Sunday school class, how can I organize a training to talk specifically about financial preparedness in 20 minutes? And so that was the first project that really got me hooked into to the disaster preparedness side. And then, I mean, we mentioned it earlier, the things that you see in response and recovery with the different faith organizations coming together. I mean, I was in love. Like, it, it, it was the nexus of all that I'd been interested in. And so I'd really just continue to kind of follow the curiosity, honestly, and just how these different organizations continue to work together and evolve. And then it, it's resulted in me being at this center now for four years this time around, and then at FEMA for about seven years. And so, but prior to all of that, my ambitions were very different. Uh, but I can say the consistent thread has always been about making sure that there was a continued nexus and um, exploring what that connection looks like between uh, the faith communities work and the work that they do in the community every day and how government functions every day and how they can function better together to solve shared problems uh, for, for the communities that they serve. Well, we're glad you're out there doing that work. Now, as we close, I would like to ask you two of our favorite questions for our MPLI alums. The first is, what did we teach you that you have found particularly useful? And then secondly, what do you wish we taught you that we didn't? Uh, so for the first one, I would say the concept of the walk in the woods. And so this idea of being able to take your time and explore the shared interests of other partners and being able to take a large scale look at an issue um, right alongside that, of course, is the cone in the cube uh, parable, if you will. And so I think that those are two things that definitely stuck with me and continue to guide a lot of the way that I look at and reframe and try to think about the work that we do uh, from our office. Um, that the thing that I wish you would have all taught me, or maybe you alluded to it and, and it had come across later, I would say is how to create swarm intelligence um, or how to manage some of the information flow that happens, that is happening at an up speed. I feel like every other week you have a different organization or level of government or entity that's facing a challenge purely because of communication um, and, and, and expectation engagement. I'm not saying that you didn't preview the lesson completely. I will admit that I underestimated how big of, uh, of a challenge that can be if you don't manage that and mitigate that and kind of mine that store consistently uh, because you, you do not want to end up on the bad end of a, of a news report or a tweet or a Facebook post or Snapchat or whatever. There's so many different ways now to have that story complicated and it quickly runs out of your control. Well, that, yeah, and that's true. There are many more channels now and, and communication is one of those enduring uh, areas of challenge for every, every organization and everybody in this field because you can never get it perfect and people's expectations are, are so different and they vary so much. But I, I think government's getting better at it. And certainly I know from our MPLI project teams here in the, in the current cohort, it's one that they continue to try and address and figure out how do you, how do you manage that fire hose of information and get it where it needs to go, but also get the information back out to the people who need it. Because as you say, it all happens instantaneously now. It really does. It really does. And that being said, a lot of the lessons that I would have that didn't come from the actual coursework that we did, 
I will say I often find it within the other class members because they're grappling with this in a much different way than I am. And I think that that's a helpful, a helpful look to have different perspectives on a problem that you may have had or may not know that you're going to have in the future. Well, absolutely. And that's good to hear. Well, Marcus, I want to thank you for joining us today for, for sharing your insights on working with faith-based and neighborhood organizations. You uh, have illuminated me, and I'm sure illuminated our listeners as well. Uh, as a reminder, our guest today has been Marcus Coleman, who's the Acting Deputy Director of the Department of Homeland Security's Center for Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships. Marcus, I want to thank you for joining us, and to everyone out there, be ready to leave, be ready for your it moment, and we'll talk to you next time. Thank you. All right. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. This has been another episode of Leader ReadyCast from the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative. Subscribe to Leader ReadyCast wherever you get your favorite podcasts and find out more about us at npli.sph.harvard.edu. Follow us on Twitter at HarvardNPLI. Thanks for listening and be ready to lead.